0: Hello and welcome to New Books and Critical Theory, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Dominic Finkelde, Professor of Philosophy at the Munich School of Philosophy in Germany, and with me together is Sophie Adloff, who is a student at my faculty. Today's interview is with Frank Ruder. He is senior lecturer in philosophy at the University of Dundee and has published extensively on Hegel, Badieu, Freud, Marx and others. He is also known as editor of the online journal Crisis and Critique, where philosophers such as Butler, Dijek, Badiou, Dola publish regularly new papers in the field of contemporary dialectical materialism. In this conversation, we will focus on Frank Ruder's book, Abolishing Freedom, published uh, already some years ago in 2016 with University of Nebraska Press. I was surprised that it did not receive the attention which I think it deserves And this is one reason why I wanted to make this interview. Another reason is that I read this book with a group of students and we had many interesting discussions. Ruder's book, Abolishing Freedom, is quite unique. The reason for this lies in the comparative reading of authors diverse as Martin Luther, Descartes, Kant, Hegel and Freud, because they all grapple with the limits of human freedom, and obviously so. Because, generally speaking, we understand freedom, at least since Aristotle, as a capacity or as a capability to choose freely between different options. Expressed with the formulation of Harry Frankfurt, one could say, an action is free only if the agent could have done otherwise. Now, Ruder shows us that this intuitive and classical formulation of freedom of choice between different options is deceptive. It suggests, for example, that we can choose the amount of freedom we want to live up to in the same way and in, which we want to, uh, in which we choose between tea or coffee at the breakfast table. And Ruder points out, obviously, that this is a trivialization of freedom. We do not get up in the morning determined to be more free this week than we were last week. And one reason for this is that freedom is not something we have at our disposal. Freedom rather happens to us. It is a quantity of agency that we cannot dispose of. Ruder's thesis now is that the authors mentioned in the book, as I said, Martin Luther, Descartes, Kant, Hegel and Freud, know this. And as such, they are interested in conceptualizing a certain point of negativity or, metaphorically speaking, something like a ground zero of human agency and autonomy. This is why topics such as predestination, morality, or divine provenance, uh, to name just a few, guide the argument of the book. And one result is various forms of fatalism that emerge from the different chapters of the book. And what this fatalism is about is one of the topics of this interview. So let's dive into this fascinating book. Hello, Frank Ruder, and
1: welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. Hello, Dominique. Hi, Sophie. I'm very, very grateful that you're having me.
2: Hello and welcome, Frank Ruder. I am pleased to meet you for this interview. My name is Sophie Adloff and I am studying at the Munich School of Philosophy. Together with Dominique Finkelde, we read your book, Abolishing Freedom, within a group of students at the university. And we had a really good time discussing the different topics. So for today, we prepared a few questions that might help to understand the main concern of the book and to highlight some interesting arguments. There is no need to stick to a strict list of questions. Rather, we may be going to skip some in order to talk about another one in more detail. So before we get into the discussion, would you please say a few words about yourself, your philosophical interests, and how you came to write the book we are talking about today?
1: Um, well, of course, thanks, um, and I'm I'm very pleased. I can say that in advance that um, you had a good time with fatalism. That already um, <laughs> right <laughs> kind of uh, makes a, a quite compelling um, um, case for this. So, well, I my my background basically, I did my PhD, and what um, so all my colleagues and everyone in the UK since I started working in Scotland at in dundee um uh, conceives of as being a second phd which which it isn't Uh, so i did my my habilitation also in germany um my, my background i did my my phd in in um on hegel um and on hegel's political philosophy and and um with uh one of the um leading figures of um let's say of a specific interpretation of the frankfurt school namely Christoph menke and then i did my habilitation in um at the at the um for university in berlin um, and um broadly speaking I'm, I'm since my phd i worked in in a field that seeks to bring together on an on a very let's say ontological or theoretical philosophical basis but for practical purposes so i i don't make that strong distinction between theoretical and practical philosophy in the in the very traditional sense on the one hand side, German idealist traditions, broadly speaking, I'd say, and their crucial reference points. And on the other hand side, what is commonly referred to, even though the snake the of fire might be slightly misleading, as continental philosophy. So, um, already early on, I, 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 I don't know, I was totally struck and could not but follow their work by the Ljubljana School of Philosophy. Um, and psychoanalysis, and um, I had a similar experience when studying in, in, in Paris with Badieu, um, and so these these kinds of influences that that might be might be a bit more, let's say, diverse than I that in South uh, right now um, are the background against which I strangely stumbled upon a text by Sartre, and Sartre, it's a text on Descartes' notion of freedom. And Descartes uh, and Sartre basically is kind of um, on the one hand side um, um, he 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 sees in Descartes a companion a fellow companion on on the on the path and for the project of rethinking human essence in terms of human freedom. On the other hand side, he is absolutely bewildered. Um, by Descartes at one point in his oeuvre saying that indifference is the lowest degree of freedom. And um, Sartre thinks there is something internally totally incoherent in Descartes. I think Sartre is wrong, but but, but Sartre thinks there's something wrong with Descartes. To conceive of indifference, which seems to be the... The epitome of freedom, right? I can make myself indifferent to all kinds of external impulses, and I can indifferently choose between tea and coffee. To use Dominic's example, um, not as the epitome, but as a problematic form of freedom, and that got me interested, and that got me into, let's say, a rethinking, a rethematization, I'd say, of different conceptions of freedom and their critiques. Oh yeah,
0: great, yeah. Well, then we we start immediately now for, with the with the first question, which is which starts also with your main topic, and it's on Aristotle. Uh, you start with Aristotle, and more precisely with Aristotle's definition of freedom as capacity, or you could say freedom as choice. Uh, can you explain what this definition means and what what you perceive as problematic to then write a book about fatalism? And then I think if we get this idea more clearer than maybe the other chapters will will f- follow nicely in line.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I can connect that, I think, to, to what I said just a moment ago about, about um, Descartes identifying indifference as the lowest degree of freedom. Why Descartes says that is because I, if I'm indifferent with regard to the choice I'm making, let's say tea or coffee or whatsoever, I... I, um, I have a, um, what, what the problem with that is, is that I take freedom to be real in the existence of a choice, right? This is what Descartes um, um, believes is happening in indifferent. Why does he call it indifferent? Because thereby I become indifferent to the ways in which I realize that choice, right? I'm already content and happy. I see freedom already realized as having the choice between tea and coffee. Right, I think that is already the reality of freedom. So, in in some sense, Descartes flags that as the lowest degree of freedom against a certain Aristotelian tradition, which obviously disliked Descartes and which was predominant at in in, in Descartes' time. I'm um, extrapolating this um, in in the following following way. Um, and let's say I'm mimicking Heidegger's history of philosophy a, a tiny bit. Um, I mean, you know that Heidegger, for Heidegger, the big culprit who re- ruins at least Western thought and was uh, responsible for basically everything bad um, in, 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 let's say, the development of uh, Western thinking, politics, and so forth, is Plato, right? Um, and, and the epitome of that is the slogan that with Plato, the Aleteia, so the, the, the proper let's say um, um, showing itself by not showing itself of truth came under the yoke of the idea right was was conceptualized or came under the let's say predominance of a of a certain form of conceptual thinking I'm basically mimicking Heidegger um, not but not for the sake of making fun but um, for for pointing out that one can um, narrate this story also differently uh, because Heidegger is also a great great um, uh, critic, critic of contemporary, again, indifference, right? He calls it Gleichgültigkeit and he believes everything became in in modernity became of equal validity, um, right? That which is a literal translation of the German Gleichgültigkeit, but he believes Plato to be the culprit. I'm just, just... shifting the blame a little. And I'm saying, what if? Um, Heidegger's diagnosis can be um, specified in a different sense if we understand that it is not a certain oblivion, as Heidegger believes, of a central um, um, and crucial um, um, category or concept or term, uh, namely of being, and thereby of a certain type of difference, but a specific interpretation of freedom that instructs um, the, the the history um, that is um, that somehow reaches one of its most intense realizations in modernity, and thereby I'm basically trying to make Aristotle the culprit. I know this is a bit artificial, right? This is why um, in the moments where I um, um, be um, where I am as um, specific as I can be, I'm I'm um, um, pointing to that being a certain Aristotelian contemporary Aristotelian interpretation of what I take Aristotle to be saying. So I'm not simply saying with Aristotle everything bad began. uh, right? But I'm saying Aristotelianism as such manifests um, from a certain point onwards. And this is not my claim right now anymore, but it's Descartes' claim. Um, It's up to a certain extent, I think, Hegel's claim. um, And and it is up to a certain extent, I think, Kant's claim. manifests in a certain interpretation of freedom. And that interpretation of freedom is the interpretation that freedom is something that is inherent in the human life form, that is a crucial component of what humans, and here right now lies the emphasis, naturally are. They are by nature and doubt with a certain type of ability, of capacity, that, whose name is freedom. And for that interpretation, it doesn't matter much if freedom is, let's say, something like the matter capacity that uh, allows for the realization of all possible kinds of capacity. So if I, I don't know, want to eat a lollipop, I um, realize my freedom in realizing my capacity to uh, um, eat the lollipop, right? Or if I'm saying, um, um, so if it is a, a, a component of all of them, Right? Or, or if it is a separate capacity, I'm not even diving into that kind of problem because I think the crucial argument is that from Aristotle or in, 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 an, in an Aristotelian interpretation, we're talking about the having of freedom. Or in my terms, of, we're talking about and we're starting from the assumption that freedom is a given. Right, it is a given. This is what I call the myth of the givenness of freedom. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, the myth of the givenness of freedom is the assumption that by means of nature, because we're human, we because we belong to a certain species, that kind of species being involves a certain kind of having, and that having is the having of a certain kind of capacity, and that capacity we name, we name freedom. Right.
2: So the idea of um, freedom as a capacity is based on a wrong anthropology, you would say. So I think that leads to um, the second chapter, no, the first chapter that is devoted to Martin Luther. So he, um, according to him, we have to accept that our nature implies our absolute incapacity and we have to abandon the the idea of hope and trust as a whole. So his doctrine of predestination attributes human beings an excremental status. So, I mean, it's another um, anthropology. And we are not the precious crown jewel of God's creation, as we may suppose, but rather the most abominable creatures ever. So what can we learn from Luther's radicality? And what does this attack on the entire Aristotelian and Thomistic tradition intend?
1: Yeah, um, so so why why Luther becomes relevant for me, not only because, let's say, um, that would be a two biographical reason, for that matter, because um, let's say all all German ideal, uh, idealists like Kant and Hegel, for example, are Lutherans, right? So 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 Hegel was always a Lutheran, and he even wrote in a letter, "I, I am Lutheran, I will remain Lutheran for the rest of my life." So there is this kind of dedication, but because I mean, b- because Luther seems to entail, uh, seems to seems to have or um, offer an interesting different conception of what freedom, freedom freedom, can mean that has to do with a different type of anthropology or fundamentally right, but also but, um, it has to do with the shifting the question. So Luther does no longer try to give an account, an almost descriptive and empirical account of the ways in which we realize something we already by because of our nature have, that would be Aristotle, but Luther raises, I think, the crucial question. All thinkers, um, the book, the book um, deals with, race, namely, um, what does it? How can we conceive of freedom if we need to think of freedom free of nature or liberated from nature and liberated from givenness? Or to put it differently, how do we conceive and think of nature if we need to think freedom as something uh, that? That 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 entails that we must think it's constitution, right? So we move from the myth of givenness to freedom to an account of how freedom is constituted. This is the opposition that I'm trying to draw, right? That is the conceptual, let's say, line of demarcation. And Luther is the first one who says something about the constitution of freedom. Why? Because I mean, um, 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 because in in his anti-Aristotelian. Anti-Arist- Aristotelian um, um, orientation. He starts from the question and this, this involves a a, a a fight that he had in 1515 with Erasmus of Rotterdam. Um, 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 the, 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 I think the, the, the crucial question is a question about the constitution of faith, right? Of belief. What does it mean to believe? Is that something we can just do because we're free to believe whenever? Or is that something um, that we can simply start when we feel like it? And this question I take to be, and right now you can immediately bracket um, all the theological um, and I think highly interesting and relevant discussions, but but Luther's point is very simple. If we're Aristotelians in the sense that I just described beforehand, we can't say anything about faith on other than we can start to believe in God whenever we want to, right? Which, 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 and then we can say maybe it doesn't work or whatsoever. But Luther basically says, but this is highly non-illuminating. This is actually wrong and problematic if we believe that we are the ones in possession of the capacity to start to believe in God whenever we want to, right? Because then we make it into our choice. It is clearly an existential and absolutely important phenomenon, to to say something about what belief is, but but we misdescribe it. We describe it problematically, and we don't understand anything about its internal logic if we think that this is something we can just do, right? Because we have the capacity. Sorry. uh, That's a good point. Maybe maybe, uh, to
0: to give a comment from my side. Then the question would be: What? Well, what is Luther gaining? What? What is? What is the surplus of his or his theoretical surplus when he, when he points to the let's say to this the concept of predestination as a as a point of negativity where absolutely no human freedom plays any role? What is? What is it that he has gained? Uh, although maybe ontologically, anthropologically, and and theologically speaking, from your point of view, what is the? What is? Uh, what is so great that, that we have? Uh, that, that he is giving us to us in this, uh, Thesis that we are totally dependent on
1: something else. So, what what remains from the humans from the human mind? Yeah. So, um, I think theologically speaking, um, Luther thinks he has avoided blasphemy, right? Um, we, wh- why is that? Because I mean, there is this um, kind of kind of mediocre song, "God is one of us," right? You know, I forgot the the name of the singer, and um, this is absolutely not true for Luther, right? Luther thinks the moment we're thinking God is one of us, we are. And there, uh, Luther is Heideggerian. A von La lecture, actually, Uh, we're we're forgetful, oblivious of a difference, namely that God, as creator, is so fundamentally different that it is blasphemic to apply human categories onto something which is clearly not human. So we're otherwise we're projecting, right? The good father or whatever. Right, um, the good parent who cares or supportive and so forth. And this is what he thinks Erasmus is doing. And this is what he thinks leads to an internal, let's say, economization of faith and belief. Right, we can calculate with that, which basically I think that's the subtext is thereby we turn religion into capitalism. In <laughs> right, I mean, in, in a, in a, um, um, what what do we gain by emphasizing the difference we're not gaining the insight in in, in, in and, and I'm, I'm i'm putting it right now in consciously uh, strong terms that there is no relation between god and us right there is no measure that we have to at all, let's say, speculate about God motives if he or she or it will save us or not or whatsoever, right? I mean, this is blasphemy, because then we are, we're uh, assuming that there is a standard. What do we gain from that? We gain from that, and this has something to do with what Sophia earlier said, with the excremental status of, um, of ourselves, we gain a proper insight into our own, let's say, anthropological um, 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 uh, 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 being or being there, what does that mean? Well, only if we understand that the difference between us and our Creator is so fundamental that there is no way of bridging the gap, we see something truthful or true or we have an insight into something um, that is true about our own constitution which is i mean this is why excremental status because luther uh, is supposed to have have said right uh, that 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 uh, human beings are a piece of um excrement that fell out of god's aims right and god has as much love for the excrement as we humans ordinarily have right so so but 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 that, that says something, the moment we we understand, and I think this this is a dialectical of a certain dialectical beauty, the moment we understand that we're basically shit, right? That we're not worth saving. We we see ourselves, and if we if we if we assume this kind of perspective, we see ourselves, that's the first dialectical twist, with the eyes of God. The moment we assume our own experimental status, we transcend our own experimental status and see ourselves with impossible eyes. right? Because we see ourselves in the precisely same sense in which God sees us. Secondly, this means we are understanding that um, we are in a position where we simply cannot generate our own salvation or whatsoever and are not worth it. But what that means, and I think, is that we then understand how much of a wonder or how much, um, um, what, what kind of, let's say, um, um, impossibility is happening when there are effectively and actually is salvation. Or, to bind it back to what we talked about earlier, um, um, we see what kind of wonder it is if actual belief happens to us. Right. So if we're made to believe by I don't know undergoing a certain kind of let's say Paulinian Damascus um, event or something like that, right? something happens. Sorry. Yeah. Please.
2: Um, but what is this God like? When we don't we have to believe in a kind of sadistic God when he's just the one who's uh, deciding when we get a moment of faith or he's saying no. You just um, you just have this experimental status. You don't deserve it. What is the character of this God we have to believe in?
1: Well, I mean, literally, I think in an almost Nietzschean term, I mean, it's a good beyond good and evil, right? I mean, to which we can't apply, let's say, human moral standards. It's a bit like in the, I don't know if you know that, the the Johnny Cash song, The Man Who Comes Around, Um um, right, I mean, it is basically a song about the apocalypse, and God just randomly saves people not on their basis of good deeds, and this is kind of Important because the moment this is what infuriated Luther so much that that the uh, that the that the claim that we could convince um God that we're worthy to be saved right worthy of salvation, even though we're sinners and all that by um, by committing good deeds is again an economizing on on and with within the realm of faith uh, wh- why because we are trying to convince God that we're good children, right? And and you can see there are two types of interpretation. There's the Catholic kind of economizing on that. That is what, Lu, uh, what 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 Erasmus stands for, right? I mean, yes, God is supportive. He helps us, and if we're good in our life, then our I mean, then why shouldn't he save us? Because he's a he's a good guy or woman or whatever. And on the other hand, side right, you get the Calvinist interpretation. So so post-Lutheran in some sense, which basically says, well, we shouldn't speculate on God's motives at all, yet at the very same time, if we're well off with all our good deeds in this life, well, that could be a sign, right? Okay. And Luther forbids both. Okay, great, great. great.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay, let's um, switch to an, the next topic. The second chapter presents an author one would not really expect in context of fatalism. It's René Descartes. Um, with reference to his comments on divine providence, you focus on the modes of contingency and necessity that are constitutive for Descartes' idea. So, how does the understanding of divine providence affect our understanding of freedom?
1: Yeah. Um, so maybe I should should quickly say what why I speak of fatalism. Right? Is that um, that um, that. All the thinkers I'm talking about defend in one way or the other the conceptual necessity of a concept of faith. Right? And, and this is what I was what I'm trying to understand and conceptually systematize. Why is there I mean it's easier in Luther than in Descartes. Right. I mean, intuitively. Um, but wh- what is the conceptual task, gain and purpose of a concept like divine predestination or the assumption that there is a kind of uh, a fate that has been predestined for me? And now in Descartes, one would not assume um, to encounter anything like that. But in the last published thing, uh, last published book, The Passions of the Soul, book is often um, ridiculed, right? Because he proposes therein the this this infamous uh, or famous theory of the pineal gland, right, which kind of kind of connects the body and the soul or whatever. Um, and 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 but but therein, Descartes also tries to solve an interesting problem, and that interesting problem could always almost be. Um, rephrased in terms of, let me put it like that, in terms of autonomy and heteronomy or in terms of external determinations and free determinations. So so Descartes wants to understand in what way can we consider actions as genuinely originating in ourselves and in what sense can we understand our action as being generated by um, external forms of determination. Descartes explains that as the distinction between actions and passions, right? The soul, which is kind of the agency, um, um, has passions, stuff it suffers, and it has actions. um, And it can, through these actions, so through certain acts of uh, uh, determination, generate what, what Descartes calls inner emotions. Sound a bit like passions, but are different, right? Because they are, let's say, if you... Descartes thinks of the following. If you have a great idea, right? You're just hanging around and you think about stuff and you have a great idea and you're happy about having a great idea. That's an internal emotion, right? Because it is just you yourself thinking something and then thinking, Eureka, or whatever you think, or cool. Um, well, um, that's the other option. There are passions that are generated by external determinations. Now, now Descartes um, basically um, 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 raises the following question. And I think that is, that is, that is, that is kind of a, an, an, an important kind of question. He says, um, the self-determination of the soul that generates a certain type of action and the external determinations through the passions also determines a certain kind of action. The problem with the latter is that if we, I don't know, if we really want to win in the lottery or at the stock market, right, Um, we are, um, a certain passion is generated, and that leads to a certain action, we perceive that action to be entirely free, and oriented, organized by our free will, but effectively, and this is Descartes' claim, it isn't, it can only appear to us that way, but we're utterly and fundamentally externally determined because we want something that does not fully fall into the realm of free self-determination. Descartes' question is, how can we make the move from being externally determined by passions to something else? Um, And why should we? We should Because the moment we're externally determined, we are ultimately, with regard to the consequences of our actions, determined by two things. A, by um, a, a certain type of and I'm, I'm saying that consciously, a certain type of contingency. So the outcome of these actions, let's say I broker at the stock market, right? Because I, I am passionately, in Descartes' sense, involved with it. Um, but I, can't, I don't determine uh, uh, the numbers uh, and the market, right? So, so it, it is contingent, right? I'm speculating on contingency. And only the future will tell me. Right? So these are the two things um, that I'm most abstractly um, 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 determined by, by contingency that is out of my hands and by the future, so not by the presence of my, my actions. Now, Descartes believes this is a closet form of Aristotelian good fortune. This is the problem. So we're basically saying we have the best of intention, and this is, um, um, let's say, a, a principle of uh, eudaimonic ethics, uh, uh, right? Um, but but the, the, the problem is that um, um, that the realization of my good intentions, because they are, in general, um, um, originated uh, uh, in an external impulse, um, um, are depending on external types of realization. Now, Descartes says... The only way I get rid of being externally determined, even though I perceive it as being free, right? I mean, this is the crucial problem. I, I, I think I'm acting freely when I'm stockbrokering, but I am not, because everything that I'm doing depends on external stuff, on good luck, and this is why I hope, right? I, I have high hopes that I win. And Descartes believes, or Descartes' argument is the moment I start hoping, And wishing that I will not have bad luck, I basically am admitting indirectly that I'm externally determined, right? So his question is, how do I get away from external determination? His answer is, and this is quite surprising, at one point in the passions of the soul, well, I have to believe in
2: fate. So what about this aspect of hope? We have to abandon hope after Descartes.
1: Yes, hope is a hope and fear are reactionary and externally um, affected, um, affected, uh, um, 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 uh, generated effects, and and they are always an indication that I basically um, don't know what the future will bring because what the future will bring is not in my hands, and I and but but the problem here is more complex. It's not not simply that I don't know what the future will bring, but I willingly. Let myself be determined by something else, right? That, that is, I think, the, uh, the problem that, that, that is in Descartes. Um, and, and then I start hoping. I start hoping when I forget in some sense what I know, namely I know that it is out of my hands. And because I know that I don't know what will happen, right, I start hoping. And hope is a way of not fully assuming what I know, so I'm 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 somehow externally determined by something, and the result of which, because it's out of my hand, leads me into this reactive affect. That's an expression of the passion, right? I mean, hope is a passion in the sense, and fear is also a passion. I hope in good fortune, I fear bad fortune or bad luck.
0: So in that sense, divine prov- providence uh, is is very similar to to some kind of Lutheran predestination. That's that's your point. It's uh, bizarrely because uh, Descartes obviously comes from from the other side of the of, of the debate, uh, but uh, but you would say, well, he, he, well, uh, clandestinely he he is he is he is a Lutheran in the closet.
1: Exactly, uh, you're ab- absolutely right. Yes, so um, so. Descartes basically says, uh, uses divine predestination to get rid of, let's say, being problematically determined externally. And now, now of course, the obvious and immediate counter argument is. Well, ruder, are you not simply saying he wants to get rid of external determinations and therefore he reintroduces external determinations, right? <laughs> so, but this is not the case because, and this is why it has something to do with necessity and contingency, because God's plan is ultimately, Descartes believes, um, something that I can't know. And it is totally reliant on God's freedom. And God is so free that this plan is nothing but an expression of utter contingency. Right, so I rely on freedom, on the freedom of God, when I presume that I'm utterly determined by it. Right, and um, and here comes the catch. And and uh, Descartes at one point says, "Freedom, uh, uh, God's freedom is not greater than mine." Right, so he basically believes that there is something divine within me. So different from Luther. That's the difference. So we move right now from the let's say non relation between the humans and the divine in Luther, to a non-relation within the subject, right? So we have something of God within us, namely a strange kind of freedom, right, Um, that is so free that it could even lead us into believing that we're free while we're utterly unfree, right? Um, And the only way of combating that is by endorsing um, um, let's say, um, 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 something like God's plan, a fate, un certain fatality, he says, so a certain kind of um, um, fatality, right? I mean, fateness um, in, in all our actions because this will allow us to understand that everything that happens to us is actually an expression of freedom, but in a very different way than the good and bad luck.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Let me bring in a little bit another question before we uh, g- uh, continue with Kant and, and Hegel. Uh, because when we discussed your book in the reading group, or the the question came up uh, several times uh, what it is that you want to achieve with the book, let's say, for, for to the audience because there is some kind of existential urgency or pathos. And, uh, and my impression was, and uh, you already as a, as a gave credit to this impression, is that you want to to determine something that I would like to call um, a ground zero of fatality, which then somehow initiates a dialectical U-turn. You know? And I can understand this even with regard to Descartes and with regard to Luther. But what about this kind of fatalism that you are somehow proclaiming in in the time of naturalism that we are living in? So, so again, before we continue with the, the other chapters, uh, maybe some. I think it's important also for the for the audience that that listens to this interview to know to know what what what, what is what it is that you would like to achieve with the book uh, when you say, well, uh, abolish freedom and let's focus on fatalism. If we live in a in a world where the the name god doesn't have a big currency
1: yeah absolutely so my argument per se i i I agree with what you're saying um so it is a a a a ground zero or let's say a let's say deep a a a um um i don't know a my my question on the one hand side is let me put it like that um how can one conceive of freedom non-mythically? That is, how can we conceive of freedom in such a way that we're neither saying freedom is a natural given, that's the condition of a certain kind of naturalism, nor how can we say that we're simply, I don't know, cons- uh, um, uh, organized by our brains and whatsoever, right? <laughs> so how can we maneuver these two types, let's say Aristotelian naturalism and natural science naturalism? How can we avoid both, both options? Um, because both believe that the answer is already given, right, in some sense. Um, and I think this is problematic because if we think like that, we don't think freedom historically and we don't fr- think freedom materially. Why? Because we don't think freedom um, through, um, thinking it's constitution and thereby, I, I suppose, um, we're not thinking freedom. That's the point. I mean, that's, that's my point, right? So why I, I draw on this pre theological kind of, kind of history and then turn it into, into rationalism, um, into the history of modern rationalism and combine the two, because I think this is, the history of this kind of fight. So the history of the constitution of modern philosophy as modern philosophical rationalism, very broadly speaking. so I don't mean a very limited version of rationalism. Um, 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 but I mean a rationalism that thinks about the constitution of freedom because it thinks it is a it assumes it is a rational demand um, to conceive of it. on the one hand side, and that's the purpose of the book is to prepare. To come to 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 let's say get rid of problematic accounts of freedom. Why? That's the second purpose because they're politically disastrous, Um, and um, can be. This is this is um, something that thinkers of all all um, let's say emancipatory kinds, but. For example, um, um, Marx has quite clearly seen, um, right, who spoke um, um, of um, um, or who qualified. Um, um, uh, a certain ideology of freedom, as the Eden in which equality, freedom, and Bentham rule, right? So, so, so there is a certain let's say um, kind of repurposing of this natural naturalized versions of the givenness of freedom, right? Because then it's a possession, and possessions can be invested and stuff like that. Um, so that is the political imp- implication. But the, I think the overall theoretical framework. This is what I'd say, and this is what the purpose of the book is. is It is to raise a very trivial and very fundamental question. If it is the case that the concept of freedom necessitates us to conceive of the constitution of freedom. And if that necessitates the insight that we are not simply free and cannot simply constitute freedom, therefore, because otherwise that would be a circulus virtuosos, right? And so, Or a, 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 we would commit a, a petitio principi, maybe that's a better way of putting it, right? We would invest what we want to explain. If that is the case, then how do we prepare for freedom? How do we prepare for the constitution of which um, of that which uh, whose constitution we have to think to think it properly.
0: Maybe, maybe l- yeah. l- let me put it in my words, when I unders- to 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 see if I understood you correctly. I could understand that you say, well, we have, let's say, we have the the idea of um, determination, uh, for example, ex- as expressed f- by many others, among others, also Alex Rosenberg. So there is no free free will, and then on the other hand, in the naturalistic. A line of argument we have Dennett who says, well, freedom is some kind of obviously something that our that our biology is uh, is put up with, and it has a it has um, it has advantages, and as such, it's really not a big problem. And and as a between these two extremes, so we are not free, we are not free, and we are free. And where's the problem? Uh, you want to put emphasis on the political dimension of of freedom. Probably also in the in the in the Hegelian interpretation of freedom as a process as something that is always uh, in the making w- with, with with you could say with, with some kind of indeterminacy, and in that, and in that sense I understand your what you're struggling with is is a the theory theory of indeterminacy between these two extremes.
1: Exactly. Yes. And um, I, I mean when when I say I think one has to. If we are just saying because we're humans, we're free and we have it, Right, we we invest too much, and we explain away what needs explanation. We can then explain the normative structure of our practices and stuff like that, and we can say, well, because we are endowed with reason, that already. But we're not talking about the very constitution of the space of reason anymore. Right, this is why it's a huge problem for that tradition to say they always say discipline or something like that, right? Um, When they want to explain how we enter the space of reasons, that's what they all right. All Wittgenstein said discipline. It's disciplinizing. It's getting habitualized. And blah blah blah, but I mean the, that that necessitates a whole lot of, of explanation actually, um, because because the problem that occurs precisely there is the question of how do we constitute freedom, or it is it, it, it is the closet affirmation or confirmation that we do not always already have freedom, right? So we need to think about the conditions of its constitution. Okay, great. Right. So you, yeah, you
2: have to read the book maybe as a. Uh, rethinking and recovery of freedom more than just an abolishment of freedom. So at Mm -hmm. one point you you call fatalism a precondition of freedom itself. uh, Your text is not an appeal to mere resignation um, either Mm -hmm. to an indifferent absence of thinking or will and something Um, but what I'm interested in: How do you avoid resigned individuals when you ask for broad acceptance of um, their own capacities and um, of the givenness of the catastrophe? So, how can you think, um, for example, responsibility?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, right. I, let, yeah. let me let me uh, uh, add something. You could say well obviously it's not a it's not a it's not a book against freedom it's it's more a book it's a, it's a defense of freedom but beyond uh, the clichés that that have dominated certain arguments but uh, and nevertheless if you if you focus on the on the, on your book and also on the audience you you probably know Jordan Peterson, who who writes i mean i i i like him i i'm not one of his critics i think he's an important uh, intellectual but obviously you have there an author who wants to give answers Answers uh, of resp- responsibility to a whole generation living in the predicaments of a naturalized world, whatever uh, or, or, or economized world, and in that sense, I understand the question of uh, Frau Adloff of Mrs. Adloff. So, uh, what is uh, what is the message also to uh, to people who are not willing or, or are not or or are not capable of? Thinking about freedom and responsibility as you as you would like to have it. Yeah,
1: um, I mean, let me let me specify the problem again, and I think this this is important. On the one hand side, yes, I, I think we agree that the let's say theoretical, broadly speaking, enemies. Um, 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 um and I don't mean that personally, I mean that conceptually and structurally, are these types of naturalism. Yet what there is a practical, practical problem, and I think that's a historically historically specific problem. Um and that is what the signifier freedom allows how it operates in certain discourses it is something like the holy cow that no one is is supposed to touch in political discourses right because the moment you're touching i mean it is maybe not as bad or maybe equally bad as democracy right i mean these two things really get you burned on a number of levels if you if you say something about this and and yet Yes, and I'm not. I'm not basically saying let's ditch freedom, but I think I, I very much agree with your, your 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 description, Doni. It's a defense of freedom against its admirers and defenders. I'd say, right? So, um, but but I'm not. I'm not offering a concept of freedom, and this is why I understand um, Sophie's question. What I'm I'm trying to say, and this is why. Each of the authors um, I'm I'm dealing with raises the question, how can we, in one way or the other, prepare for something for which we cannot prepare? So Luther's question is, how how can we prepare for the advent of faith that we can't generate ourselves? Right? Um, How can we prepare for the constitutional freedom if we are not the ones, not the only ones? making that very freedom. What does preparation mean? And so forth. So the fatalism I, 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 I try to endorse is not one that leads into regna- a resignation or a kind of, let's say, I don't know, trivial kind of uh, passivity. I think sometimes in line with people like Zizek or about you, that sometimes it's better to do nothing than to do the wrong thing right and have a good feeling in doing it right because one thinks one is saving the world by perpetuating it and also um my 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 and this is why i emphasize the rationalism so often um my um my perspective is instructed or instructed by by someone like like the 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 guy who um um invented what he calls enlightened doomsaying, so jean-pierre dupuy jean-pierre dupuy uh, working against the background of 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 people like Ivan uh, and and um others comes up with the with 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 a very 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 i think compelling and interesting interesting um 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 observation sometimes it is precisely our ways um 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 uh, um the ways in which we're trying to avoid the worst from happening that are the reason for the worst actually happening. So this is Dupuis description of the climate situation, right? We're starting to calculate and then we think we have another 20 years and well, okay, two degrees, maybe it's two and a half degrees that we can tolerate and all that is totally unknown. So, So Dupuis describes that in such a way that the way we're dealing with the climate catastrophe by trying to postpone it as much as possible and getting ready and blah, blah, blah is the very reason why there will be a climate catastrophe. So what does one do in such a situation? One would be the, let's say, the Trumpian or Trumpist, uh, rather um, 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 uh, right-leaning one of resignation or of active resignation, basically say, well, if we can't do anything, so let's not care. But I'm not saying that. Uh, that is important. But I'm saying, and this is, this is an argument that I, I think I, I share with Dupree, but also with someone like Zizek, who calls that inversion of the apocalypse, by basically saying, well, the only way to avoid Bringing about the worst um, uh, 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 through our very attempts um, um, to avoid it from happening is to assume that the worst already happened, precisely of us trying to avoid the worst in these ways. Right.
0: Is so, this also part of your your Hegel reading? When you when on can you can you explain or give give a little bit flesh to to the word, to the name Hegel here in this context? Of
1: course. I mean, in in so so um. I, I dive into um, Hegel because um, I want, uh, well, let's say on a, on a purely scholarly level, I wanted to understand why are thinkers like Descartes, Kant, and Hegel defenders of divine predestination? Why? Because they're also the great thinkers of freedom in the in the in the average reception, right? How does one square these two tendencies? Now, now, what Hegel says, and he brings that to the fore, and I think this is quite quite interesting, um, in the philosophy of history. The philosophy of history is what he describes as a theodicy or as a justification of divine providence, right? So, so, in what way can? So and right now one could say, well, this is Lutheran story story over. But but I think uh, Hegel is more 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 complicated and more complex. Um, and I'm not gonna. We can talk about uh, this this framework um, again if you want to, and we re- can return to that in a minute. But but I think what Hegel Hegel shows. Not in the philosophy of history, but in the in the phenomenology of spirit. The phenomenology of spirit is a preparatory work. It was, I mean, phenomenology was, I think, from from um, I forgot the German the name of the German guy, but someone earlier um, um, earlier than Kant and Kant read him and Kant wrote a letter to a friend basically saying, phenomenology sounds great. Is the negative science that precedes the actual science as its preparation? Right? this is what Kant says so the phenomenology is kind of a preparatory work and I think hegel means it in this in this in this in this sense so the phenomenology is something as he conceived it for for quite some time that prepares us for the beginning of free thinking proper that is then and its account that is then developed in the logic what does that what does hegel do hegel does um offer in the phenomenology a gigantic undoing a gigantic process of unlearning of everything that we tend to presuppose of all the ways in which we tend to presuppose or in all the ways we try to get around um, um, assuming that we shouldn't presuppose, but still want to go on. Right. And, 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 and so what, what Hegel offers us there, I think is a very elaborate account of how we can only properly conceive to start um, um, or start to conceive of anything that has to do with with freedom if we traverse this kind of preparation, this kind of preparation which is a gigantic undoing, unlearning of all the things we take to be a given. Why is that necessary? Because otherwise we constantly bring about the very thing that we want to avoid. Right. Mm -hmm. I hope that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. But nevertheless, what is what is it about what you said that that um, the the uh, we have to have the insight that the apocalypse has already taken place. I mean, you could say, uh, I think you you were were talking about that in, with for Hegel, philosophy can only start when an epoch has come to an end or when spirit uh, somehow grapples with this with its own decay. Is this what what you're what you're talking about when you when you see so uh, uh, well to get to get rid of all the preconditions and then somehow to start thinking anew? Is this what you were what you were referring to? This kind
1: of that philosophy always comes too late. Yeah, I, I mean, so um, maybe maybe I can can put it best in the following way. So so Hegel Hegel is quite clear that philosophy always always comes to late that's the all of minerva argument from the end of the of the um, of the uh, uh, introduction to the philosophy of right right so the uh, philosophy constitutively comes to late this is why philosophy and that's kind of part of my point is not a normative endeavor it can't be right it simply can't be but it thinks that which is about to decay And it thinks the normativity of that decay, right? So the reasons and the grounds for that decay. So it things the very vanishing. Hegel says something very similar um, about the origin of philosophy. There is only only a philosophy because, let's say, a certain natural order. So, it's, philosophy is a denaturalized, denaturalizing um, kind of activity and practice. Um, um, when a natural order somehow falls apart and is about to vanish, and what philosophy then thinks is the being of that van- vanishing. Right. So, philosophy is nothing. But the thinking of disappearance, that does itself not simply disappear, right? So spirit somehow emerges from the disappearance, philosophical spirit emerges from the disappearance of the world. Um, And what it thinks is that very disappearance. Hegel says then, and I think that is crucial, that there can only be a philosophy of history, right, when everything that history is about so an entire conception of history comes to an end what does that mean when the philosophy of history is supposed to be at the very same time nothing but the justification of divine providence well my reading is the following i'm basically saying yes Hegel, we we need to take this absolutely seriously. And Hegel claims that history is where the plan that God made for for, um, this world and finite spirit manifests. But if we look at that very, very, very uh, manifestation, what do we then see? Well, what we see is something that is not chaotic, but that does only depict. That the only plan we can decipher is that there is not really a plan in history. Why is that? because Hegel at one point, clearly indicates that the only thing that people ever learn from history, and that is an important lesson is that there is nothing to learn from history right so So what I do with this, and I think this is uh, this is one one um, one way of, 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 of approaching what Hegel, Hegel does um, with, with the conception of divine providence. He takes Luther's claim that divine predestination exists, but we can never know why because we can't cognize God and twists it in a philosophical way by saying, We can fully cognize God's plan. God is absolutely manifest and apparent to us in history. But what do we think and see when we see God's plan manifest in history? That this plan is only that God had no plan. And what is a God who had no plan? It is a God who admits that he doesn't exist.
2: So in your book you call this structure comic. I mean that's quite irritating. For example, why is comedy the key and um, not tragedy? So where do we find the moment of comedy in fatalism?
0: Again, it's in a, it's another of your dialectical twists that you do. I, I, what you, you what you said about Hegel is absolutely brilliant and, and, and makes it really clear what your what your point of, on 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 Hegel is in this context. Um, but then. One at least, I think the German title, the German, German t- subtitle of your book is "Comedy and, and and Fatalism." I'm not sure if it's also for the English version. But what, wh- where does comedy uh, come into play here?
1: Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Um. Um. And, and and thank you for for the for the nice comment. So um, I mean I mean so so what, what 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 why is that coming? Because we have the following structure. If my if my reading, um, can be can be defended of Hegel's philosophy of history. We have a God who basically has the function through history to reveal herself itself himself as someone who then admits that he she it does not exist right This is ba- the basic structure that I that I want to deem um, um, that is a basic component of the structure that I want to deem comic um, why is that well a number a number of factors here come together I think on the one hand side. Um, Hegel cherished comedy as the highest of the art forms, right? Um, why? Because he, and he makes uh, some distinctions about uh, classical or ancient comedy and modern comedy, but he thinks, and this has been el- uh, elaborated by Alenka Tsupanchich inter alia, that in comedy, something specific comes to the fore about subjectivity, um, and in her rendering it is not that let's say someone who has a high opinion of um, him or herself slips on the on the um, on the paradigmatic banana peel and then falls to the ground and everyone laughs because let's say the previous impression is ruptured or broken down and whatsoever, but the point is rather that he or she stands up again and acts as if nothing happened right so it is and 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 hence what um what i'm trying to 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 point to is that the concept of freedom um that might appear through the traversal of fatalism and you can see why why hegel is, is is crucial for me because um we need divine predestination to get rid of all kinds of divine predestination, right? <laughs> all, all forms of pre- pre- divine or economic or whatsoever predestinations that we nevertheless assume, right? So we radicalize the very assumption. So we're basically fighting fire with fire. That is the methodology somehow. And um, what I'm, what I'm, what I'm, what I'm, what I'm drawing from this is that the structure is worse than tragedy. Why? Because tragedy always has a certain certain structure, at least in Hegel's interpretation. And the structure in Hegel is that there internally is an unavoidable conflict that manifests, right? Let's say an antigone between two types of order that provide orientation. And there is no third or higher order that could provide a meta-orientation for solving that kind of conflict. What the subject is, it is the division between these two orders, right? Antigone has, let's say, two options, and two options are determining for her. So that is why she is totally free in that moment. But it's a tragic kind of freedom, right? And she will ultimately either not bury her brother or die, right? But, and this is now what I'm trying to say, this kind of stable structure, that falls apart for a moment, only for a moment in comedy for Hegel right so so it is the collapse of the two orders that provide the structure of the conflict or let me put it put it put it differently if the transcendental structure itself collapses with the someone who falls to the ground on the banana peel then we're dealing with comedy in the moment when it rises again this is why i'm i'm basically saying the only axiom of everything that i present is there is no there is right so so it is a self undermining um and self reinforcing um attempt um 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 to get rid of, of this type of givenness to get rid of let's say for a moment um to generate a break of any kind of transcendental transcendental structure why does that matter because any kind of transcendental structure leads us into the givenness of freedom right right
0: i i mean that's uh you could link this up brilliantly with Umberto Eco's *The Name of the Rose*. Yeah, so that the lost, um, uh, the lost paper Aristotelian part of the of the of the, uh, the uh, uh, on comedy is missing. So and that has to be defended. Yeah, so, so we are not supposed to laugh. Uh, this this fits nicely in your in your interpretation of comedy. So comedy is worse than
1: tragedy in a way. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. I mean, in some sense, I think this is. There's a point that also has been made a number a number of times by, by someone like Zizek basically saying, Well, all the I mean, okay, it's a value judgment, but nevertheless I think there's some systematic point that it. All the all the um, good movies about um um the Holocaust are actually comedies in in some sense. Yeah. why? because what is depicted there, what's presented to us there is so horrible that it would be unbearable if we if it were presented in the form of a tragedy right that's a
0: good point that's a good point that makes it very clear.
2: okay, so um... At the end um, of the book, it's another aspect now. Um, a slogan appeals: "Act as if you were an inexistent woman." I asked myself, how can we realize this demand?
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay. That is uh, that is funny because um, I I I had a number of discussions about about the book, and everyone really in in each and every single one, this um, a, a version of that question came because uh, it seems that that that. This is kind of the best slogan I, I came up with, or the most enigmatic, or whatever, uh, or, the, or the worst one, right?
0: Um, out of your f- chapter on Freud, uh, we don't. To, I don't. Th- we don't have the time to talk about uh, entirely to Freud, but if you could give us some some hints at what what the sentence is supposed to mean, yes,
1: exactly. Yeah, yes, of course. So um, I got into I get into Freud, um, and I'm 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 short circuiting a number of things right now, and I'm leaving aside. A lot, but because Freud uses twice, um, um, I a sentence that he took up from a uh, conversation that Napoleon had in 1808 with Goethe, where uh, Napoleon said, uh, "La politique, c'est la fatalité," right? So politics is fate, is fatalism, is a certain fatality or um, fateness, and Freud takes that up and turns it into. The anatomy is the schicksal. So anatomy is destiny. That's the English uh, uh, translation. And so twice he uses that. Um, And um, the last time is in 1924 um, in a text about the dissolution of the Oedipus complex and it's it seems at first that it seems to con- confirm all the worst cliches about Freud um, right and and um, and it, it sounds uh, like like um everything that makes everyone shiver uh, but but Freud there makes a, i think an interesting a very very interesting argument um, and I'm just going to be brief um on that so he he says, how do?" If we for a second accept that there is an Oedipus complex right I mean and there is a longer argument about that um so how how does a male child um 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 get out of Um, the Oedipus complex frame and thus restructure uh, um, his desire um, its desire sorry and um, Freud says well for that first needs to appear some form of castration threat so some kind of uh, comment by the father or some kind of figure of authority if you don't do this or that right and this needs to be perceived this needs to be let's say understood or um, conceived of as a real threat so it should be it needs to be subjectivized in a proper sense and when does that happen freud now specifies the conditions for how we get out of the oedipus complex for a male kid and he says well it is when someone is really getting uh, experiencing an anxiety to be castrated. And when does, when does that happen? When a male kid sees a nude female kid. right? It sounds, again, totally horrible. But now Freud makes the following point, and I think that is absolutely crucial, is that the male kid is under the illusion in that very moment when it sees an, a nude female um, kid or the mother, right, that there are only men and castrated men, Right. This is clearly an illusion, right? But in that, so it's wrong empirically, right? But nevertheless, this is the outlook of the male kid. So the male kid only knows, and that is specific to a male logic. The male logic only knows men and castrated men. And this is what the male logic identifies the latter with women, right? Women are castrated men. And hence, the castration threat com- becomes real, is subjectivized properly when the male kid starts believing, "Oh damn, they're really castrated men. I should better behave or orient myself differently, right? Um, because otherwise, I become a woman, i.e., a castrated man." Right? But that means, from the male logic, we can't think of woman, of women. There are no women that would not be castrated men. Now, Freud. He's not saying that this is the case. This is absolutely crucial. Freud is not himself believing that there are only men and castrated men in the world. He's not saying that. He's saying this is the male logic Within the framework of the um, Oedipus complex and the dissolution of the Oedipus complex, right? So it is in the complex; it, it gets out of the complex when there is the production of anxiety um, that there, and, uh, and, and this uh, production of anxiety is when the castration threat is um, experienced to be to be real. So for the man, there is no woman; woman in exists, right? Now Freud, and this is um, um, kind of um, what, I, uh, w- what takes me to this strange imperative, um, basically says, well, the situation looks totally different for a female kid. Why? Because the female kid is not immediately in an Oedipal scenario, right? It loves the mother as much as um, um, the male kid loves the mother. So it needs to first, let's say, Oedipalize itself, the female kid to then be at all um, 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 able to to get out of the Oedipus complex. What is the implication of that? And the, the technical details are a bit more complex, but I'll leave them aside. What is the implication of that? A only from the perspective of the female kid, we see that the Oedipus complex is not a transcendental human structure, right? Because it, it isn't, I mean, it, it simply isn't if some first need to get into it. Second, it means it does not determine all human action, right, uh, in, in advance. Third, it means that the female kid kind of freely gets into it and thereby freely can get out of it. And that entirely changes the relation to structure the entire relation to what seems to be unavoidable and unavoidable fate and whatsoever. So from what perspective can we think freedom? Only from the perspective of the woman, only from the perspective of that kind of logical position, which for the male logic does seem to not exist. So what does that mean? Well, it means if, you want, if one wants to act and a different relationship to um, any kind of structure, well the only position that there is because it is the position of freedom is that of the uh, of that which exists for the man namely of the inexistent woman
0: good yeah okay, no very only... very insightful yeah thanks.
2: okay we only can achieve the position of freedom from a position of of the women okay interesting um so for now, could you give us a brief idea of what you are currently working on
0: that we are we are coming to the end of the interview so and so to close up it's, it's... It's nice to know. Well, uh, anyhow, thanks for for the explanation of abolishing freedom, but uh, I think it will, but it's for also us interesting because uh, abolishing freedom is from 2016. What, a, what are you working on? Maybe this is the last uh, question that we come to the close.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm I just finished a book which is right now with the press with um, together with 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 two friends with um, Zizek and Argon Hamza, which is simply called uh, Reading Hegel where i return to one of the so so slavoj does his own thing and um argon does his own thing and i'm 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 dealing with um the status of nature in in hegel's philosophy which is which is very strange and it it, it has resonances as you can certainly see after our conversation with what we just what we just talked about, but the the long term project that I'm involved in, and I hope to make a make a huge step and uh, or a huge advance by the end of this year, is a book actually on well on the concept or effect or um, term of courage, um, because well in the passage where for the first time Descartes and the Passions of the Soul says um that fatalism can help us get rid of external determinations and help can help us make the the step from a certain let's say experience of freedom which is practically um, um, endorsing unfreedom um we need courage right we need a certain kind of what, what what in german is called mood and um and um so so in some sense, I think this is related to one of Sophie's questions, um, namely, what does it mean to assume the position of fatalism, right? Is there something that one needs? Um, and the effect that everyone endorses is despair or anxiety, right? This, this is what is uh, spread throughout the book. But I am now interested in what does it mean to work with anxiety, to work through, and in in Lacan's terms, to introduce small dosages of anxiety sometimes, and to structure, restructure things by working with that kind of anxiety and despair that is generated through the assumption of predestination or of fate and so forth. And the name of that, um, I think that the tradition has given, is courage. So what I'm so I'm making the next systematic step, if you wish, um, to 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 work with the product the subjectivized product of, 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 of fatalism, namely with anxiety and put it to a productive use because fatalism is something that, let's say, leads to subjective destitution maybe, right? And then um, if one doesn't want to remain in subjective destitution, so in, in a right, uh, subjective state that is almost desubjectivized, the question is how, how does one work with it? And, um, and my name for now uh, um, for this is courage,
0: okay well sounds sounds really cool I, I think you already worked on courage as
1: well it's taking me endlessly long I got i really got sidetracked because um there is this i i found this and it's quite nuts i think uh, not not a lot of people have done work on this but heidegger um okay it's another thing that can easily get your hand heads and everything else burned, but 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 Heidegger has a quite elaborate theory of of courage in German mood, which is linked to poverty ah mood, and um, attitude gay mood, and um, even I found an absolutely amazing passage where he links it to motherhood mutter right and so that kind of kind of got me got me a bit a bit sidetracked because i think there is something there that i that i that i that i want to resuscitate without falling into let's say the heideggerian rabbit hole
0: uh, okay yeah because i remember that we that you already mentioned in conversation with me that you were work, working on on courage yeah well, that sounds really cool uh, but nevertheless we Uh, to come to a close so I just uh, or we both just want to thank you again for taking the time to talk with us it was really a pleasure talking to you Uh, you have always um, very inspiring ideas and uh, and you're really a free thinker of of new theory it's really really astonishing so thanks a lot thanks a lot and have a good day bye bye Frank
1: Um, thank you very much for having me that was very very enjoyable and pleasurable and hope we can repeat that sometime okay bye thank you bye bye Thank you.